It's great to see everyone. You enjoying our service? Well, that's great. I don't know if you noticed, but last Sunday we opened that kids' play area, and they love it, right? Have you noticed that? Have you seen any pictures? I'm going to have to throw some pictures up here for our next hour. It's, uh, they had a great time back in there. It's all good stuff. And again, if you give to EO3, that's a special uh, capital campaign. That's what made that happen. So thanks to you. Uh, if you designate gifts that way, we appreciate that. And of course, with that EO3 campaign, I'd like to just give you a little report on that. We're not done with that. We've got a few more things to do. Uh, physically over there, there's a security wall that's still being planned to go in. That, shouldn't, that should happen this fall. And also there's another wall that happens around uh, the octopus area, which will contain the youngest kids. And uh, that'll make it easier on moms and dads that are kind of trying to connect with each other uh, in that gym. So uh, those things are still happening. But that's just part of EO3. There's, there's three things, everyone on three, and the three things were children's space, that's that, and then training new leaders. We actually are just hired two new residents, and we have another, a third resident coming in December, so we're excited about those additions as we train, uh, train people to serve in Christian ministry, and so that's coming along well, and then we are working very hard, kind of behind the scenes, on where our next location for a campus would be and just trying to figure out as we look at all the different dynamics on where we feel that we could reach the most people for Christ. And so all that's happening and is happening. It's unfolding as you're sitting here. And again, if you're part of EO3, thank you. And then one other thing before we jump into the message that I want to make sure that you didn't miss that Mike talked about was baptism. We have baptism next Sunday. So the time is short. If you've come to the point in your life where you've placed, you've admitted that you have sinned against God and you've put your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation, understanding that he died on the cross for your sins, if you've come that far, if you've become a believer, then the next thing God wants you to do is to go public with that through believer's baptism. And next Sunday morning, we'll have the baptism tank right up here. We'll be doing baptisms. If you haven't signed up and you think you probably should have, I'm going to try to create a shortcut for you, okay? Who likes shortcuts? Yeah, some of you like shortcuts, and I don't know what, what's wrong with the rest of you. But anyway, uh, you can, after this service, wait, here's what you can do. Grab a card, even if you've checked in online or whatever already. Grab a card in the chair rack in front of you, put your name, put baptism, and then take that card to room one right after this service is over and meet with the pastor and they'll just meet with you right there about baptism next Sunday. Because we all, as pastors, we always want to meet somebody about baptism just to talk to them. Hey, this is not salvation. You already have to have come to faith. This is just a public testimony of what God's done in your life, and so we just have to have that conversation. So we'll take care of that in room one. If you bring a card and say, hey, I want to get baptized next Sunday, and somebody let the pastors know we're doing this, all right? Okay, well, then we'll, we'll take care of this. So we'll make that happen. We'll try to speed that up for you. We started a series, Sketchy Views of God, last week. And the reason that we're, we're doing that is because we've come to the realization that a lot of times, 
people have walked away from God or they never believed in God or they're not as close to God anymore or they left church because they had the wrong view of God. They had an inaccurate or a sketchy view of God and because of that sketchy view of God, they expected certain things from God and when those certain things didn't happen or didn't line up, then they walked away because they started having doubts and they were disillusioned. And then a lot of them, they didn't just flip to be an atheist where they just denied God completely. Because as we know, there's a lot of baggage with atheism. If atheism is true, then there's no God. And then that means there's no purpose, no meaning in life, no truth, no error, no falsehood, no morality, no anything. Because all that then just becomes subjective to each person. And so there's no standard of morality, no object morality. And so they don't want all that baggage. They, so they, they kind of retain a belief in God or a higher power. We'll talk a little bit about that next, next time. They'll retain that, but they distance themselves from God so they don't have to be under the accountability of God. Yeah, I kind of believe, or I'm agnostic, or I don't know. It's, it's keeping God far enough away that you're not accountable to God. And all that happens, it starts with a sketchy view of God. So like last Sunday, we say, whether you're here and you've walked away from God, or you've come to know God and you want to know him better, or you've never believed in God, it doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, we're glad you're here at Grace as we go through uh, some of this material. And, and some of these are just views, wrong views or sketchy views of God. And so we're glad that you're here. Now last week we talked about the non-existent God. And then, you know, how people have turned away. But, but a lot of people haven't done that. They just did what I described a minute ago. And remember, as believers... We are called by God to help non-believers understand more about God, the God of the Bible, the true God. And we, we have this verse that, that we use a lot around here, 1 Peter 3.15, that says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you. Yet we do this with gentleness and respect. So I'm going to talk about four sketchy views of God today. And there's a little overlap with the first one last Sunday. And, and basically I broke them down to two categories. And the first category that I want to talk about is uh, sketchy views of God that are more intellectual... And so these are views of God that typically maybe more people outside the church have that are inside, although there's both. And so we're going to start with that, the more sort of intellectual, sketchy views of God. And one is, and here's the overlap, it's the anti-science God. Some people feel that they must choose between undeniable scientific facts and the God of the Bible, and it's got to be one or the other. And along with that, people think that you can't 
rationally be a rational thinking person and also be a believer in God. But actually, there's no conflict between science and, and between hard science, fact-based science, and God. And the question is, who told you that there was a conflict? So God, and Christianity in particular, theism, that's belief in God, and Christianity in particular, is the best explanation for the way things are in our universe. That's what we're saying. That's what I'm saying. Christianity, our beliefs about God and the way things are in the world, that's the best explanation for the reality that we see every day. But some people reject that. And uh, it, it sort of reminds me of an illustration, in, and, and it, it's the O.J. Simpson trial. How many, O.J. Simpson trial happened a long time ago. How many of you remember the O.J. Simpson murder trial? Well, we have a bunch of old people in our church. Now, you know, I had to go back and research this because it's way before my day to find out, you know, what the facts were. But, uh, but so he, here's the deal. For those of you who are younger and would have to do research like me, it kind of broke out like this. O.J. Simpson was a famous athlete, an NFL football player, uh, you know, just a famous personality in, in our country. And his ex-wife, Nicole Brown, and a friend of hers who worked at a waiter at a place she was there earlier that evening, named Ron Goldman, were murdered at her house, I think near her front door of her house. And so when that happened, O.J. Simpson became one of the suspects. And, and he actually, that night, later that night, got on a late night flight to Chicago Later, when he returned to L.A., they had a warrant for his arrest, and then he got into his white Ford Bronco. How many of you remember this? And they had the, yeah, they had the low-speed chase, you know, remember? He's just, he's not going very fast, but there's a bunch of cops following this Bronco. In the meantime, he's on the phone. Inside the Bronco with him is his passport, a bunch of cash, a disguise, and he's threatening to commit suicide. You know, everybody back off. I'm going to kill myself. He's got another guy there with him. He's trying to talk him off the ledge. And so there they go. And then he finally drives home and they arrest him. Now, the reason I'm pointing this out is I just want to talk about evidence. So here's the evidence. So, and basically, uh, he was acquitted for this murder after an eight-month trial. He was acquitted in less than four hours. And that included them having a lunch break. And, and so, and some of the, uh, the majority of the country was just like, what? Because here was the evidence. Simpson had already been convicted of domestic violence against his ex-wife, Nicole Brown. Simpson's blood was found at the scene of the crime, his ex-wife's house. Blood from Ron Goldman, Nicole Brown, and O.J. were all found in O.J.'s Bronco. A bloody left hand, heiress glove, was found at the scene and had blood from Goldman, Brown, and Simpson, all three on them. And that glove matched a right hand glove that was found at Simpson's house. 
And then he was known and photographed wearing these gloves a lot, warm often. Then there were bloody footprints at the scene and in the Bronco. And these footprints were from a rare type of Bruno Magli size 12 shoes that OJ owned and was photographed many times wearing them. These are so rare that less than 300 pairs were sold in all the United States. And then Nicole Brown's blood was on Simpson's socks, which had 20 stains of blood on his socks. And so all this evidence piled up, and then everybody asked, with all this evidence, what happened? Well, what happened was, as they go back and sort of review this case, how many of you like true crime stuff? Yeah, true crime. Yeah, I've never seen this on a true crime episode, but, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of issues here. But what they found out is the jury they found had a presupposed bias against police. So they were leery of the police. And actually there was a police officer, Furman, that didn't help any of that because he had kind of a checkered past, although there are tons of police officers involved in this. And so because of that presupposition... It didn't take, they went back for deliberation already thinking that he was innocent in spite of all this evidence. So now here, here's my point. It's not whether he was guilty or innocent. He was later actually found guilty in a civil trial of causing their death and awarded money that, you know, and his life has just kind of spiraled out of control. But anyway, here's the point. When we look at evidence when we already have a preconceived notion or presuppositions that we're bringing in, it will change the way we look at the evidence. It will change the way we interpret the evidence. Same evidence that everybody else in the country saw, but it changes if you have a presuppositions. So, and here's my connection. Many scientists have a presupposition, a bias against God before they see any evidence. But in much of the scientific world, it's way more than a bias. It's a predetermined decision that God cannot be a cause of anything. They're predetermined. They've already made up their mind God does not exist before they look at any evidence. And because of that, they believe that no answer can be outside of nature. So this presupposition is not from science. This is a philosophy, a faith philosophy, because you can't prove that there's no God. It's a faith philosophy that they start with before they look at any evidence. They, for example, we talked about this last time. They say the first cause of nature can't be outside of nature, which is lo a logically impossible position. So what caused nature? Nature was caused by nature even before nature was there. You know, it just doesn't make it. Nobody thinks that. Why is that logically impossible? Because in our world, things don't just pop into being from nothing. For, for example, how many of you are sitting here this morning, Sunday morning, nice day, 
and you're kind of worried that a hippopotamus has popped into your living room right now and is defecating on your carpet and you're going to go home to a mess. How many are worried about that right now? Nobody. Why? Because things don't just pop out of nowhere to do that. Science tells us things don't pop into existence out of nowhere. That's what science says. Why? Because we could never observe that. Yet, naturalistic scientists say that the universe popped into existence from absolutely nothing. Now, Christians say there was an eternal God who created the universe. It's interesting because now when we say, well, there's, you know, we have the cause argument, which we talked about last time. And then they say, well, you know, the universe didn't have a cause. And we say, well, God didn't have a cause, but the universe did. And we can now prove that the universe started that was not eternal. That's, that's relatively new. Before this, atheists used to say the universe is eternal. See, now sometimes atheists will say, we'll say, well, God's eternal. And they'll say, well, nothing's eternal. That's very interesting because atheistic scientists used to say the universe was eternal until science proved that they were wrong. Does that make sense? Are, are you following that? So no matter how much scientific evidence piles up and no matter how much logic piles up pointing to something outside of nature or something beyond nature as a cause they automatically dismiss it as a possibility without even considering it. The difference between an atheistic scientist or a naturalistic scientist or a scientist with nat naturalistic methodology and the rest of us, other scientists, are that we all look for naturalistic explanations, but when we find that there can't logically be a scientific explanation then we go beyond, the, uh, can't possibly be a naturalistic explanation, I'm sorry. When we logically understand, figure out that there cannot logically be a naturalistic explanation, then we would say, okay, if all the naturalistic explanations are ruled out, then let's look at something beyond nature. That's the difference right there. And so... That's why you have all this tension in the scientific world. It's not about the evidence. It's not about science. It's all about the presuppositions and the predeterminism that happens before they ever look at the scientific evidence. Does that make sense? Well, I thought it would make a lot more sense to that. Than, than that. Are you following me on that? It's, it's a position they've already had before any, before any evidence from science has come into play. Right. Where scripture's saying, hey, the God of the Bible is immaterial. Immaterial meaning spirit. He's spaceless, timeless, omnipotent, omniscient, unchanging, holy, just, righteous. Incidentally, just like he revealed himself to be 3,500 years ago 
in the Old Testament and described himself back then, this is pre-science, pre-anything basically, that's how God described himself back in the Pentateuch that was written by Moses 3,500 years ago. And incidentally, he described himself exactly like now we know science says the first cause much must be. Is that kind of interesting? To three of us, we're just like, yeah, that is interesting stuff. All right, for the, the rest of us need to move on. All right, so some people usually outside the church, second view, is that they would accuse people inside the church of believing in the gap God, the God of the gaps. And, and this is kind of an argument that says, hey, way back into primitive prehistoric times, you know, way back then, although I just showed you 3,500 years ago, we have theism and the God of the Bible. But they would say, hey, way back in the day, you know, people didn't understand things. You know, it would thunder, and they would say, whoa, the gods are angry. This is the gods, you know. Or there would be disease, and the gods are getting you, and the gods are punishing you. And it was all, every time there was something that they couldn't understand, they would just say, the gods did it, or God did it. And so people outside the church primarily will say, well, Christians, they just believe in God because he's the God of the gaps. He's the God you can always fall back on if there's something that you can't explain. And then the more we explain, by the way, then the more gap God shrinks because we don't need him to explain as much stuff because now we know where thunder comes. Now we know disease and all that. So gap God just keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And then those people believe that sometimes gap God will go away completely and will prove that there is no God because there's a naturalistic answer for everything, every single thing in the universe. Although that can't be proven. It's not proven. It's not even close to be proven. And most people are realizing on both sides of the yard, they can never prove that. So, but this is kind of a, a straw man. No Christian group that I know of has this view. Individuals can have this view, but no Christian group, for example, would have this view. Um, but they use it a, as an argument. But we're saying, like I said last week, we believe in God. Because he is the best explanation for what science has discovered. Not that he's an explanation for what we haven't discovered yet. No, he's the best explanation for what science has discovered. If you consider all logical options. And the thing that really irritates me about this view is the people saying this don't understand history. Science began because of the Christian worldview. Science began with Christians. It was Christian thinking that led to the scientific movement. Because Christians alone believe that God created an orderly, stable, explainable universe with laws that we, dis that we can discover and we can learn more and more information about. That God created and then he stopped, he rested. 
And because he created it, and because God is an intelligent being, he's given us this stable, orderly universe that we get to study and find out more information about. The first people that thought about the world that way were Christians. That's what led to the science. That's why the scientific movement did not start until after Christianity took hold in several places. Again, God is the best explanation for the things that we do see in the universe. So many in the church, so that's sketchy views. That's mainly outside the church, and they're mainly more intelligent-based, if you want to say it that way. But then the next two that I want to talk about, these are sketchy views that are more emotive, they're more emotional-based, and they're probably more predominant inside the church. Sketchy views of God, which can cause you to walk away from God, to be disappointed with God, to uh, you know, separate yourself from God. And it goes like this. So sketchy views of God that are more emotional. One is the feelings God. This is the God that I experience, and I, it's, this is the God that was always felt. If he's with me, I feel it. If I don't feel him, he's not with me. I only experience God's presence through my feelings. If I'm not emotional, one way or the other, then God is not with me because I believe in the feelings, God. So then you talk to people, and they'll say something like this. I don't feel God's presence. I don't feel God's presence. Anybody ever not feel God's presence? I mean, that actually happens quite a bit. I don't feel God's presence. And then because they don't feel God's presence, they have doubts about God. Doubts, all kinds of doubts, whether he exists maybe, or doubts about whether he cares, and on and on. We'll talk a little bit more about that next time. Or if they don't feel God's presence. Or worse, they'll say, I don't feel saved. I don't feel saved. But please understand, there's a lot of problems with this. First of all, we can't always trust our feelings. And this is what culture will never tell you, but you know, I think we all know from experience Feelings can be wrong, right? Sometimes our feelings can be wrong. They can lead us to do what's wrong. They can be destructive in our life, our feelings. So this always go by your feelings, if you actually live that out, that will lead you to prison, right? Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Never, ever trust your feelings more than you trust God. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. So back when I did a lot more counseling, I would always tell people, because what's happening? They're doing what they feel like doing, even though it's destroying everybody they love. And so I'd say, you know, you're, 
your feelings are wrong, you know, and so you have this big discussion. And so the thing is, let's say, you, what we all need to do is we need to focus on truth. Focus on God's truth. Keep focusing on that. And let God's truth trump your own feelings. God's truth. And if, you've, and, and if you're having to struggle with that, you're not focusing on God's truth enough. Because the more we focus on what God has told us to be true, what God has told us reality is, the more we focus on that in our life, the more our feelings will then line up to what we know to be true. It's a process. It doesn't happen immediately. But the more we focus on what God has said is true, the more we do that, the more our feelings will line up under that truth. I, I would say, does that make sense? But I'm afraid to even ask. So <laughs> don't trust feelings if they're in, especially if they're in opposition to biblical truth. And so sometimes, you as, as well as I do probably, we have you know, these weird conversations where somebody will say, God told me to do this. God told me to do this. And usually, almost every time, it's something they want to do. Hey, God told me to do this. Well, what did God tell me? Well, he told me to leave my wife and go do this and go, you know. What? That, number one, that would be impossible because God is always consistent. But secondly, it's just a matter of thing is what we always say is, how do you know God told you that? Well, how do you know? And, and what are they gonna say? I feel God's telling me this. Well, you feel like God's telling you the opposite of what God is objectively telling you. That should cause you pause at the very least. And so, what about not feeling God's presence? Well, God tells us that once we've truly become a believer, he's always with us. Forever. Always. One of the places where that is is Hebrews 13.5. You've probably heard this before. Maybe not much the first part, but the second part, but I want to give you the whole verse. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself said, he's talking about God, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So the context here is, hey, don't trust in money. Don't trust in possessions. Don't, don't be worried about all this stuff. Just follow God. Because God's already told you as a believer, no matter what happens in your life, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you or desert you. He will never do it. And so, and that's kind of a quote from the Old Testament. And that was given to Joshua before he went in the promised land that he was going to accomplish what God wanted him to accomplish. But here are some reasons that you may not feel God's presence even, even though he is Present. Now, this is all assuming that you're a believer. If you're not a believer, you may not feel God's present because he is not present inside of you the same way he is with a believer. So, But this is assuming that you're a believer, assuming that you've understood your sin, that you've sinned against God and God is holy and righteous, 
And God, because he's perfectly just in his character, has to punish wrong. And you're part of that. We all are. And then, but then because he loves us, he says, you can get out of this punishment by putting your trust in Jesus. And then Jesus takes your punishment for you. So justice is preserved. Sin has been punished. But you are not punished because you put your faith in Christ and he took the punishment for you. God says he has to punish wrong, but he's offering to take the punishment on himself in his love for us. So if you've done that, then that means you're a believer and you should get baptized. Side note, but anyway, (laughs) you're a believer. So let's say you're a believer, but you don't feel God's presence. And by the way, remember, Christianity started, it's all evidence-based. It's all fact-based. It's all, here's the information. Do you agree with that? But then there's this will of wanting to follow God after the resurrection, wanting to follow Jesus. So if you're a believer, it could be when you're not feeling as present. Number one, maybe you're fearful. And by the way, when you're planning on doing something wrong that you know God says is wrong and you view yourself as a believer and you're feeling really uneasy about it, good. You should feel really uneasy about that. That's God, and you're thinking, I I just think maybe God's not with me. No, that's the spirit in you convicting you of the sin that you're contemplating doing. Second, maybe you're sensationalizing God. Hey, God, you know, I need this, this, this. I need you to show up with a bang. You've always got to make me feel a certain way. If I'm not feeling, then I'm questioning whether you're there. Remember, the Jews kept asking Jesus for a sign. Even though he had done signs in front of them, they would just ask him for another one. And finally, you know, Jesus was just saying, stop asking for a sign and believe. Make sure that we're, our belief is there and we're not sort of sens- sensationalizing The feelings that we should have for God. Three, maybe your heart is hardened against God for ongoing sin. This is when we get caught up in a habitual sin. And rather than kind of go through this cycle of confessing, admitting it, that's confession. And then repenting, meaning the desire to not do it and trying to make a plan to not do it. Rather than do that. You're just caught up in the sin and you've maybe done that so much that you don't try to repent anymore. You're just like, hey, I'm just, this is just the way that, this is just the way God made me. So maybe I get a pass on this. And, I'm, and then you get callous because you don't want to live in feeling with the guilt. And so you just get callous against sin. Well, whenever we just kind of go away from God in some area of our life and we become calloused against our own sin, we do this a lot. Well, don't be surprised if we feel. God's presence less in our lives. That would be a natural way of just drifting from him. And so then you'll feel he's distance. But it's not God going anywhere, right? It's who? You, us, right? Four, maybe God is using something in your life to draw you closer. No, but you don't understand. I don't feel his presence. Maybe that's God saying, hey, You should become closer to me. I haven't gone anywhere, but you're ignoring me. Or maybe it's just human nature, number five. 
How do I say that human nature? Because as humans, we're least aware of what's most constant in our life. And God says he will never leave you. And so you're looking for some sensational feeling. God hasn't gone anywhere. So another sketchy view of God, and you pick up the pace here, that causes people to walk away from God is the on-demand God. And this is mainly inside the church, the on-demand God. This is the God who responds to fair and especially fair requests. This is the God who would respond to my request if they're fair or especially if they're selfless like for somebody else that he would respond just like we would. We expect God to do for us at least what we would do for somebody else. And so if we're thinking that if, if God is personal and God loves me, God should do what I want him to do or what I need him to do. But then what happens is through various things in your life, sometimes that is not your experience. Hey, I asked God some reasonable, fair, maybe even selfless request, and God did not come through for me. It's usually, you know, some you want. And so because of that, because God didn't do it, you stop believing. Or you haven't yet, but someday this will happen and you will stop believing. Or it's not that you'll stop believing, you'll just be disappointed in God until you just keep him an arm's length from your life. And that looks like, yeah, maybe you show up to church, maybe you pray once a day at a meal or before you go to bed or when you get up. But really, you, leave, you live your entire life every day sort of detached from God. Because you just don't feel as connected. Because you have doubts about your on-demand God. Who told you that God was responsible to answer your prayers in the way you want him to? Where is that? That God has to do what we ask him to do. We're invited to pray, but where is God obligated to do whatever we want him to do if we think it's fair? First of all, it doesn't even make sense. We know probably almost everyone here, if you've been a Christian for a long time, especially when you were a teenager, you probably prayed for things that now you're looking back going, I'm glad God didn't answer that prayer. Wow, I'm glad that didn't happen. Right, God's smarter than we are. God wants your best, and we think we know what our best is, but we're not as smart as God is. It's okay to stop believing in the on-demand God. Real God answers our requests with infinite wisdom way beyond our understanding. And he does what's best in our life in spite of our sketchy prayers. The other thing is, let's say God did do everything that you prayed for. Think of the pressure that would be. Okay, God, I, I think I should pray for this, but what if that's wrong? I mean, I think it's right, but what if a year from now I find out I shouldn't have prayed for that? 
But if I pray you, for you to do this and you have to answer and it turns out to be a negative in my life, that's going to freeze me up. How do I know to pray for that? No, pray and trust God as a loving father that he will do what's in your best interest, whether you like it at the time or not. That's the God of the Bible. So if you walked away, return to the God who loves you. Not the God of your mind. This, the God that's described, who's revealed himself in the Bible, return to him. You're living life and you're just not, your life is not integrated with God because somehow through experience, God didn't show up in the ways you wanted him to. And so because of that, you've just kept God at an arm's length where you don't really do life daily with God. You acknowledge him once in a while, but your life's not integrated with God. You're not really living in the spirit. Come back. Come back. He wants the best Or if you just become hardened or calloused and you just think, well, maybe God won't even notice. You know, I'm kind of doing life on my own. Ditch your sketchy views of God and cry out to the God of the Bible. He knows you. He loves you. He created you. He wants what's best for you, but he will not force himself on you against your will. Turn to him and live daily in the joyful presence of God. Experience that, because if you're truly a believer, he's never gone anywhere. He's with you. Know it, live it, enjoy it. That's what God wants for us. Let's stand for prayer. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. Thanks for loving us. Lord, help us to be who you want us to be as believers. And Lord, if there's any here, our friends, our neighbor, maybe a family member that's just here in the room and they don't know you, Lord, in a personal way, Father, we ask that your spirit would interact with their heart. They'd come to know you. Maybe that would happen just by returning back to church. and We don't know. But Lord, help us who are believers to have answers for people, to show them God. And Lord, help us experience your presence every day and how we live out our life every moment of every day. Lord, thank you for loving us like that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.